You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Cade Young. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, July 5th, 2023. Later in the program, we have Deep Dive, WFHB and Limestone Post Investigate, where we look into issues regarding health, housing, and the environment that directly impacts residents of Monroe County. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, bad news and good news on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. More following today's feature, but first, the latest edition of Deep Dive. After severe storms hit Indiana this past week, Duke Energy reported that on July 21st, 2023, they had 2,458 power outages, which they reported impacting 61,382 of their customers. The storm continued throughout the weekend, leaving many individuals without power for a few days. Duke Energy reported on July 3rd to still have 1,369 power outages, affecting 18,682 customers. These power outages were the result of storms that had heavy rain, high winds, frequent lightning, and hail. According to the American Meteorological Association, storms are getting more extreme due to climate change. In today's feature report, WFHB News correspondent Cade Young and Noel Herhusky Schneider speak with Kerwin Olson, the executive director for the Citizens Action Coalition, or the CAC, an environmental advocacy organization. The CAC advocates for more equitable energy policy, utility reform, and pollution prevention. Olson touched on Indiana's power grid in light of the recent storms, causing thousands to lose power across the state. We turn now to that interview as part of the latest installment of Deep Dive, WFHB and Limestone Post Investigate. So first off, would you just explain sort of what the Citizens Action Coalition is, and a little bit about the work you do as executive director. Well, we are a consumer and environmental organization founded back in 1974 that uh, aims to give consumers a a voice in the process when uh, energy prices were high and supplies were low, and consumers effectively had no voice uh, in the regulatory process in Indiana and the setting of utility rates. So since that time, we have evolved into a statewide uh, organization that uh, does most of our work before the Indiana General Assembly and working for sound public policy related to uh, energy, the clean energy transition with a focus on renewables, uh, energy efficiency, uh, low income assistance, as well as good governance, good environmental and good agricultural policy. But uh, 
We do most of our heavy lifting across the street at the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission, uh, intervening in cases uh, before the commission where utility is seeking to raise rates, build new resources, establish their three-year energy efficiency plan. So we're engaged in those proceedings on behalf of uh, customers as well as uh, in an effort to uh, advance, uh, increase uh, spending and investment on both energy efficiency and uh, renewable clean energy, as well as work towards protecting uh, low-income and vulnerable households um, and uh, try to achieve uh, affordable monthly uh, utility bills uh, for all of them. And we're also involved uh, with the utilities uh, uh, in their long-term integrated resource planning processes, as well as sitting as members of the uh, demand-side management energy efficiency oversight boards, where we play a role in uh, developing, planning, implementing, and managing uh, the statewide energy efficiency programs offered by the utilities. So in a nutshell, we are sort of considered the uh, utility watchdog, uh, if you will, in Indiana. Absolutely. I, I really appreciate you you touching on that and sort of out, outlining that for, for us and our listeners. Um, and as you know, Kerwin, we are working on an investigative series into Indiana's power grid. And we spoke with you a few weeks back and, you know, we're, we're excited to speak with you again. Um, and I asked you a question last time we spoke, and I think I'm going to ask it again. You know, how does climate change and extreme weather impact the power grid? Well, it increases the power grid in, a, in significant ways, um, not only with respect to changing temperatures. Uh, colder winters, uh, warmer summers require uh, more energy, uh, more electricity, more services. So it's having a significant impact uh, just with, uh, you know, dramatic shifts in temperature. Uh, but we're also, you know, clearly seeing uh, far more uh, extreme weather events uh, occurring and uh, which is creating uh, significant issues with uh, utility infrastructure uh, that is failing amidst, you know, these these significant implications, which we believe are are the result of climate change. So it really is shining a light uh, in Indiana with respect to our lack of planning uh, for grid resiliency, reliability, and uh, uh, related to uh, the impact of, of, of climate mitigation. So climate change is playing a huge impact because weather, temperature have an enormous impact, not only on the infrastructure necessary to deliver utility services to the public, but also uh, the amount of energy and other other end uses that uh, we're seeing an increase of during specific periods of the year um, because of that weather, whether it's temperature or otherwise. Yeah. And I heard on Democracy Now! this morning that um, July 3rd and potentially July 4th were some of the hottest days on average in over the entire globe. And so with that, you know, you're turning on your air conditioner, you're turning on your dehumidifier and places around the world that didn't used to have air conditioning units are now trying to get air conditioning units. With all the power outages that we've had, I was kind of interested in how many different ways it was impacting people. And on Reddit, we were seeing examples of people who were saying like, oh, all of my food is about to spoil and I'm a student and I don't have enough money to buy another month's worth of groceries and places like hospitals and things. Can you provide some examples of maybe locally where a diversified power grid could have been helpful? Sure. Well, I mean, it, it all begins from our perspective in centering climate change and the impact of climate change in everything that we do, especially from planning uh, purposes uh, and in the case of this conversation as it relates to 
planning purposes for, you know, the distribution of, of electricity. Just things like, for example, even if you have solar on your roof and are participating in a utilities net metering or net billing program or whatever the case may be, but because of, uh, you know, Indiana's interconnection rules, uh, that solar is going to shut off, you know, because there's a remote disconnect switch that shuts down those solar panels. And so you still don't have power. And so changing, you know, interconnection standards that allow uh, that solar power to separate itself uh, from the grid and provide energy from the homes would have at least provided power to folks fortunate enough to have those uh, resources on properties at their fingertips, if you will. Take a look at, um, you know, the NAACP project up in Kokomo where they're creating that grid resiliency hub in that old school ground that gives a place for people uh, to go in the community when power is down and they need a place to cool down or warm up. They need a place to charge their electronics or uh, whatever the case may be. So resiliency hubs throughout the state where people could go to uh, in times like this would be uh, would be very critical, but it's also important in the con- in this conversation to understand that we have no what's known as you know integrated distribution planning in the state of Indiana. It's a concept that the you know CHC has begun to talk about more broadly, including at the commission and the need to we're seeing utilities spend exorbitant sums of money uh, on their infrastructure. I mean, how many times have we seen? Any number of Indiana utilities over the last 10 years file enormous cases before the commissions. We're talking billions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars to improve the efficiency of their grid, modernize their grid, be more responsive uh, to outages and shorten uh, the duration of outages during extreme weather. And yet we continue uh, to have all of these same issues because we effectively are just providing the utilities a, a blank check to you know, make the investments that they want to make without putting any requirements or guide rails around what those investments should be. And by that, I mean doing a real look at distribution planning at, at an integrated level, whereby we're looking at the distribution system, what needs to be done to that distribution system to make it more resilient, to make it more stable, to make it more reliable, to make it more responsive, um, to adaptation to climate change and responding um to these severe weather events. And so what we really believe we're seeing is a, a really, really hands-off approach when it comes to the regulation of the utilities. And by regulation, I also mean their planning processes and their spending processes where we're uh, passing laws uh, that allow them to collect enormous sums of money from customers, but really doesn't spend a great deal of time looking under the hood about what those actual investments are and how those investments are improving you know, the resiliency, the reliability, and the stability of the grid. So what we need to do is, is you know, require uh, some sort of more detailed distribution level process, planning process uh, that does a deep dive on, on, on the system because we are moving away from, as we talked about last time, a, a, a you know, the traditional Edison uh, Pearl Station grid of the early 20th century and moving more towards a decentralized uh, distributed grid. Yet everything we're doing in Indiana from a policy level is counterintuitive to that. Uh, we're eliminating, uh, you know, choices for customers at the distribution level. We're focusing on baseload power and large long-range transmission, and we're, we're not looking at the other side of that coin, which is the changing market economics of the energy delivery system in this country and where Wall Street is putting their money in. And that's at the distribution level. That's at the microgrid level, distributed energy resources, 
battery, on-site solar, microgrids, and the like. Mm-hmm. And Indiana is just way behind the times in terms of policies that uh, that enable and incentivize those kinds of investments. Um, well, sort of in that in that vein, on the state level, are there any plans to sort of increase the amount of renewable energy sources in Indiana's power grid? Or how do you see the state addressing this in any kind of major way? Well, I don't know that the policy of the Indiana State House is driving much of anything uh, with respect to renewables. It's the utilities themselves and the markets themselves that is causing a dramatic transformation in Indiana's electrical grid. I mean, we're seeing you know, four of Indiana's five major investor-owned electric utilities will be coal-free within the next five years. You know, so the, the Indiana investor-owned utilities, with the exception of Duke Energy, are, are making dramatic shifts in their generation portfolio. But that in and of itself does not mean that the grid is necessarily any more resilient or responsive uh, to climate. In fact, it, uh, you know, those are commercial-scale, utility-scale size investments. Um, we're not talking about local community solar. We're not talking about rooftop solar. We're not talking about on-site generation. We're talking about large utility-scale, commercial-scale solar and wind farms, some of which are still hundreds of miles away from the end user. So that in and of itself, it's not just transitioning to renewable energy that will make our grid more resilient. It's, 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 it's decentralizing, it's localizing those investments that's most important. So if you look at one data set, um, you know, and that is just the investor-owned utilities in Indiana, their portfolio, they're, they're making strides. We're going to have some utilities in Indiana who will almost exclusively be getting their energy from renewable energy resources in the next five to 10 years. But that, again, that in and of itself does not make the grid more resilient and more responsive and uh, less prone uh, to damage from these weather events. It's other policies uh, that we need to put in place that, in, you know, decentralize the grid, which we are not focused on in Indiana. How does Indiana go about decentralizing and localizing our power grid in any sort of meaningful way? How do we take that step in decentralization? Well, we have to improve our policies and procedures around interconnection to the distribution grid, making it far easier, cheaper, and less complicated. Uh, for third parties, independent power producers and operators to uh, interconnect their resources at the distribution level. Um, we have to um, have better policies in place that encourage and incentivize property owners, whether those are houses, churches, small business, whatever the case may be, to make uh, investments in on-site solar, on-site wind, uh, on-site storage, whatever the case may be, make make our properties self-sufficient um, and pass better policies that incentivize rather than discourage uh, those types of investments. When we rolled back uh, net metering, was set and rolled back 309, we changed the economics uh, around customers installing uh, renewables on their on their on their property. So much so that we've well, we don't really have the numbers in yet, but we believe we've seen a precipitous decline in the amount of homeowners and others installing on-site solar. Most of the solar in, that we're seeing being built in the state is being built at the commercial level uh, and being purchased by utilities. So we need to improve interconnection standards for distribution level. We need to improve policies that uh, will encourage and incentivize um, you know, mass deployment of customer-owned distributed generation resources uh, at the local level. 
Uh, and we also need to, uh, you know, near and dear to the heart of the of Citizens Action Coalition is energy efficiency. And prior to, uh, you know, dismantling that metering, we uh, repealed uh, the energy savings goals of, of Governor Mitch Daniels and uh, uh, the excellent Energizing Indiana program, which was a statewide uh, energy efficiency program available to all ratepayers throughout the state. So we also need to take very, very seriously the importance of not only energy efficiency, but also energy conservation uh, in this conversation, because the cheapest and cleanest kilowatt hour we'll ever generate uh, is the one that we don't use. So we need to, number one, emphasize conservation and efficiency first, uh, local customer-owned distributed generation second. Uh, that's where the conversation should start and end, is, is policies that empower and encourage consumers uh, to control their energy costs and control their energy usage and make investments in their homes, whether it's uh, you know, tightening up the uh, the envelope of, of their, their homes uh, and their buildings, whether it's uh, transitioning to electrification and heat pumps and heat pump water heaters, all of which could be powered by on-site solar on their roof and then improving uh, environment or economic mechanisms that allow those uh, those customers to not only generate the energy for their own uses and purposes, but also send that carbon-free energy onto the grid uh, over their neighbor uh, to use. And so we need to encourage that type of investment, a competitive marketplace that empowers consumers, decentralizes the grid, and moves away from the absolute stranglehold that the investor-owned utilities have over the policy of the state. Because they, the, all of that, what I just spoke of is counterintuitive to the primary goal of an investor-owned utility, which is delivering on their fiduciary responsibilities to their shareholders. So they want to spend as much money as possible. They don't necessarily want to spend that money in the right way and the best way for both environment and consumers. So we need the consumer voice uh, to be elevated at the uh, at the Indiana General Assembly and adopt policies that empower uh, consumers, um, you know, to make their own choices and participate uh, in the energy economy. That's how we get to a decentralized carbon-free grid in this country that provides clean and affordable uh, energy for everybody. Um, I was kind of wondering, like, I don't know where exactly we are talking about when it comes to interconnection standards, like on what scale? Well, I, I guess I'm talking about, I'm primarily talking about interconnection standards at the distribution level. And we have transmission and we have distribution. When you refer to MISO, they run the transmission grid. That is the wholesale power market that is designed to deliver high voltage electricity generally over a long distance. That that transmission is then stepped down. The energy from that transmission is then stepped down and goes to the distribution grid. MISO does not run the distribution grid. The electric utilities run, own, and operate the distribution grid. So we have interconnection standards and procedures for transmission, which is generally um, you know, handled by MISO and sometimes FERC, but also uh, handled by who owns the transmission, which is generally electric utility. But what I'm primarily talking about is streamlining the process of interconnecting the solar panels on your roof to the distribution grid that's owned by your local utility, making that process much more efficient, seamless, and less costly for customers. It shouldn't cost so much money and take so much time and be so difficult for a homeowner or a church or a small business to get their solar panels live on the top of their roof because of all the hoops they have to jump through related to 
interconnecting to the distribution grid, which is owned and managed by your local utility monopoly. So streamlining that process. Um, but I want to sort of give you the floor here. Is there anything else that you wanted to add that maybe we missed in our line of coverage or anything else that you would like to say before we part ways? Can't, I can't think of anything else beyond, uh, you know, elevating the importance uh, to your audience that, uh, you know, public policy as well as the process before uh, the regulatory commission matters and how it is so very important that um, consumers lend their voice to that process, whatever possible. I know sometimes it seems futile and uh, we grow up, uh, get up every morning a little frustrated, but it's important that folks don't give up and that they continue to speak truth to power and uh, provide their thoughts, their inputs, their wants, and their wishes to both their local and their state elected officials, as well as when there's opportunity. Before the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission and the Office of Utility Consumer Council, because the IURC and the OECC don't hear a whole lot from the public, and it's critically important that uh, when there's opportunity for them to hear from the public, that the public adds their voices to that process. Well, Kerwin, thank you so much for speaking with us on the WFHB Local News. Sure, I appreciate it. If you are listening and you have any questions about Indiana's energy grid you would like answered, or maybe you have some perspective on renewable energy you want to share with others in the community, you can email us at deepdive at wfhb.org, or you can leave us a voicemail at 802-552-3483. If you leave us a message, we would love to share it on a future episode of Deep Dive. One more time, in case you weren't ready before, the number is 802-552-3483. Tune in next week to dive deeper and learn more about Indiana's energy grid. Up next, bad news and good news on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. We turn to host and producer Richard Fish for more. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. This time we have bad news and good news. Let's get the bad news out of the way first. The IRS is warning about a new tax scam aimed at people like you and me who have already filed their taxes. You get a letter in the mail, and it usually comes in a cardboard envelope, looking pretty official with the IRS logo, saying it's been sent, quote, in relation to your unclaimed refund, end quote. Of course, it's bogus. 
If you're getting a refund, you have already told the IRS how to send it to you when you filed your taxes. But these scammers want you to send them pictures of your driver's license, plus your social security number, your cell phone number, and your bank account number and routing number. The letter does contain a number to call, but it's not an IRS number. If you fall for this, you will lose your identity, and you could lose all the money in your bank account as well. Warn your friends and your family. Now for the good news. A particularly nasty con artist is going to prison. The scam reminded me of a story about President Harry Truman, who was a very plain-spoken man. One time he gave a speech forcefully disagreeing with his opponents, and he used the word manure so often that a lady in the audience later complained to his wife, Bess Truman. Bess replied, "'Oh, my dear, you have no idea how long it took me to get him to say manure.'" Well, manure is what Ray Brewer was selling for five years, literally and figuratively. He inveigled some pretty smart people into investing millions of dollars in a scheme to build digesters on dairy farms in California and Idaho, which would use microorganisms to turn their bucolic end products into methane, which would be sold as a source of green energy. He sent his investors forged lease agreements with dairy owners, fake loan agreements with banks, phony contracts with multinational companies, made up progress reports, invoices, and power generation figures, and even altered photographs purporting to show equipment being built. Of course, the money went into his bank accounts, and from 2014 through 2019, he used it to buy land, a new custom-built home, and some fancy top-of-the-line Dodge Ram pickup trucks. When a couple of small investors got nervous, he kept them quiet by refunding their money out of his loot. But then some bigger investors filed lawsuits, and the Ghanif moved to Sheridan, Montana, assumed what was probably a stolen identity, and managed to disappear for a while. But federal authorities finally tracked him down, and last week he was sentenced to six years and nine months in federal prison. Manure. He sold people a lot of it, and now he's in a world of it. It's been an interesting challenge wording this report so we could broadcast it on the radio. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at WFHB.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at WFHB.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com.
You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Yane Sanchez-Lopez and Noel Herhusky-Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Noel Herhusky-Schneider and Cade Young. Better Beware is produced by Richard Fish. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. For WFHB, I'm Cade Young. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters, WFHB, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for cool solutions. Climate action from the bottom up. Coming up next on WFHB Community Radio. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB local news volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB local news archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts individual stories and catch a live feed of the WFHB local news. We are local longer 